Father, we ask you to exalt the Lord Jesus before us, and we pray, Lord, that you would impress us with the way that he has made it so that all your promises are yes and amen in him. And Lord, we pray that you would show us the way that you have proven your faithfulness by accomplishing salvation in Christ. Lord, we pray that the whole meaning of the Bible would come together for us in the way that Christ became a servant to the circumcision, that the Gentiles might glorify you for your mercy. And Father, we pray that this would empower us by the power of the Spirit to have hope and joy, and we pray, Lord, that it would also produce peace and unity among us. Lord, we ask this because we want people to know that we are Christians by the way that we love one another. And we want people to know the Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would do more than we can ask or think by causing us to love one another, causing us to praise you as you deserve. And we pray, Lord, that our experience of you and our walk with you would be transformative for us. So we commit ourselves to your care and pray for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. How do people, how do people win praise for themselves? How do they make it so that other people speak well of them? Maybe you saw the guy that ran the sub two-hour marathon. That's one way that people win praise for themselves. They accomplish some remarkable athletic feat. Maybe they, uh, by means of the way that they play a game, they, they gain a great name for themselves. Students win praise by their excellence in their, in their performance on their tests or their examinations. Artists achieve or create beauty and, and they move people and thereby they, they win a great name for themselves. Scientists make discoveries and their names uh, go into the history books, and people continue to study what they did. But as we, as we think about all the ways that people have made names for themselves, we can say with confidence, no one, no one but Jesus has saved the world. And no one but Jesus can really offer eternal life. I was, I was reading uh, the paper this weekend, and there's an article in the Wall Street Journal entitled, We May Not Have to Age So Fast. And, and this person is describing the way that our cells decay as we age, and the result of it is that our bodies don't rebuild themselves. And, and this guy, is, this, this, uh, these authors are asking whether that process can be reversed, whether the clock can be turned back and people can actually be aged younger. And, and they cite a, a study done at Harvard where researchers administ administered a combination of three genes to blind old mice. And then, they, so they, they turn these genes on and they blind these mice for three weeks. And then the treatment for this condition rejuvenated the optic nerve cells and restored the vision of these mice so that they could see again. 
Uh, but then they go on to note, there's a great distance between what can be done with mice in a lab and what can be done to help humans fight diseases and extend their healthy years. I, I, I don't want to line up to be the first uh, you know, experiment for uh, something like that. And then they also note, they say, you would be hard-pressed to find anyone who thinks it would be a good idea to lengthen human lives if we cannot substantially improve the part of life that is lived free of debilitating diseases. We don't want to just live on in, you know, in perpetuity with all of our suffering, do we? No, but, but what Christ offers and what, what has been proven by the fact that he rose from the dead, what Christ offers is actually life after death. As we approach Romans 15, verses 8 through 13 this morning, I would invite you to turn there with me. Romans 15, verses 8 through 13, there, I would say there are uh, several major themes here. One major theme is the way that Jesus himself has brought to fulfillment everything that God promises. And out of that, in response to that, the Gentiles are summoned to praise him. So theme number one, Christ has fulfilled everything that God promised. Theme number two, Gentiles. And as far as I know, almost all of us, there may be one or two exceptions, almost all of us in this room are Gentiles. So we are summoned by this passage to praise Christ in response to the salvation that God has accomplished in him. And then thirdly, Paul is going to speak of the way that believing in Christ should produce in us joy and peace and hope. So those are our, those are our big ideas. If, if you want an outline for the sermon, it's Jesus, point number one. Uh, point number two, praise. And then point number three, joy and peace and hope by the power of the Spirit. Um, the, the argument that Paul is making here in Romans 15, verses 8 through 13 really extends the argument and, and concludes the argument that he's been making that we've been studying in Romans 13 through 15, this whole section of the book of Romans. And in some ways, this passage before us, it, it draws together not only this section of the book, but I think perhaps the whole book. Because what happens after this is Paul starts talking again about his travel plans, which is what he did at the beginning of the book. So it's like he's got travel plans and how he wants to visit Rome in the opening statements of the book. And then he's got this body of instruction. And, and just to rehearse that briefly, he talks, just to summarize in broad strokes, in Romans 1 through 3, he talks about how we're sinful. And then at the end of chapter 3, 321 to 31, he talks about how God put Christ forward as a sacrifice of propitiation to establish the justice of God. And then in chapter 4, he talks about how people can be declared righteous, declared just by faith in what Christ did on the cross. And then he begins to talk about the life that grows out of that in Romans 5 through 8. And, and then he, he talks about how Israel uh, relates to the gospel in Romans 9 through 11. And then he, he, he tells the church how we should live in response to the great mercy of God that's been lavished upon us here in Romans 12 through 15. And we've been looking at the way that in Romans 12 through 15, Paul is, is calling us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And then as we continue through chapters 13 and 14, particularly he wants us to be living sacrifices when we're annoyed with one another. When uh, someone among us does something that we find bothersome or maybe even unbiblical, how we should respond to this, how both, both sides of that equation should respond. 
And, and really, everyone is called to Christ-likeness, to laying, laying down our lives for one another because he laid down our li- his life for us. And so Paul has been discussing how we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, how we become renewed in mind so that we're transformed and not conformed. And let me draw your attention to uh, Romans 15, verse 3, where Paul says, For Christ did not please himself. And you might remember how we talked about this last week, how uh, as Paul is urging Christians not to just uh, disregard others in the exercise of their freedoms and their rights, his, his appeal is to, to the way that Jesus didn't simply please himself, but he came and did what was sacrificial, what was, what was not pleasant. He came and, and lived uh, a, a righteous life and then allowed himself to be crucified and he bore the wrath of everyone who hates God. Christ did not please himself and then he, he quotes the scriptures and then he speaks of how, of how this was written for our instruction, verse 4, and he's continuing in this theme in verse 8. And he says in verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised and the circumcised here are the Jewish people. And, and as we've worked through Romans 13, 14, and 15, we've seen that, that probably there were Jews in the church who thought that they shouldn't eat certain foods because they were prohibited under the Old Covenant. But then in various ways in the, in the, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, all foods have been declared clean. And the Old Covenant law has been fulfilled and nullified. And so you have these Gentile Christians who feel free to eat whatever is put before them, And yet Paul is urging them not to destroy for the sake of the food those for whom Christ has died. So they should should serve their Jewish brothers, the the Gentile strong in faith, should serve their Jewish brethren by not disregarding their concerns. And then he's explained in 15.3, for Christ did not please himself. And now he's saying in 15.8, for I tell you that Christ became a a servant to the circumcised. And it's almost as though he's urging these Gentiles who feel free to eat whatever, free to uh, not observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. He's telling them, you need to serve these people of the circumcision party the way that Christ did. Christ became a servant to the circumcised, but it's broader than this because what Christ did when he came and served the Jews was he accomplished everything fulfilled in the Old Testament. And that's what Paul goes on to say here. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Here's what Paul means. If Jesus had not come, if if in the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4, if he had not been born of a woman, born under law, then the promises that God made in the old covenant would not have been kept. But Jesus came and thereby Christ proved God's truthfulness. By by keeping what God had promised. He he was born under law. His parents observed the law. They took him up to the temple to have him circumcised when he was a young child. They offered the prescribed sacrifices. And as Paul says in Romans 8, uh, God has done what the law could not do by sending his son. And, And Jesus came and he lived out the fulfillment of the law. And thereby... He demonstrated the truthfulness of God. He he showed the goodness of God's commands. And he showed, if God makes a promise under the old covenant, 
He's going to keep that promise. This is what Jesus has done in becoming a servant to the circumcised to, to show the truth, God's truthfulness. And then he goes on, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, this is one of those statements that, that is like, it's like a cord on a, on a lamp. And, and what Paul has done is he has taken that cord with its little two prongs and he's plugged it into this outlet on the wall and thereby he has brought in this electrical current that really is the whole of the Bible story. When Paul says that Jesus came to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm his promises to the patriarchs, what Paul is saying is, you remember how God promised to save the world to Abraham. God made these promises to Abraham back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that were ultimately about the judgments that were spoken in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. So what is the world's problem? What is wrong with the world? Man sinned. And God judged the world. And God said that there were going to be problems in particular in three areas. There's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's going to be conflict between men and women, Genesis 3.16. And then there's a curse on the land. So the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the, the, the tsunamis and whatever else causes havoc on the world. It all stems from Genesis 3.14 to 19. That's what's wrong with the world. Man sinned. God cursed the world in those, in those three ways, those three areas. And then God makes this promise to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great name, and I'm going to make you into a nation. And what that implies is, I'm going to give you a blessed land, and I'm going to give you descendants. And then he says to Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what this means, what this implies is, that enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, it's going to be overcome. So when God promised to Abraham, land, seed, difficulty between man and woman is going to have to be overcome for that to be accomplished, and blessing, God is, by the blessing of Abraham, addressing the three big areas of problems that, that were brought into the world through the judgment of, of God. And what Paul is now saying is, Christ has confirmed those promises. The blessing of Abraham, the seed, the land, it's guaranteed because Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Paul has just plugged his statements into this big story of the whole Bible. And the result of this, because Jesus came, and think about the Gospel of Matthew, where repeatedly in that Gospel, Jesus instructs his disciples, he says things like this, "'Go nowhere among the Gentiles.'" but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Have you ever wondered why Jesus says that? And then it's only after he's crucified and raised from the dead that he tells his followers, he says to them, now all authority in heaven and on earth has, given, has been given to me. Go into all the earth and make disciples of all nations only after the cross. Why, why is that? I think the idea is that Jesus came and by his life, and by his death and resurrection, by choosing 12 apostles, what he's done is he's reconstituted true Israel around himself. And then that restoration of the true Israel in him and around him leads to the salvation of all the nations. Now, Paul 
as we've looked at in Romans 11, also has a place, I think, for ethnic Israel. We talked about that. You, we can go back and revisit that. But right now, I want to stay on track here because right after in verse 8 there, he speaks of how Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Look at what he says next in verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So what Paul is saying is Jesus has accomplished the salvation of the whole world. And he did it by restoring true Israel around himself. And he did it so that the good news could be taken to all the nations. This is, this is stupendous. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament to confirm God's promises. And now the, the message is going to all nations. This is the true story of the world. This is what God is doing to change the world. This is, this is our hope. Our hope is that Christ indeed has conquered and that God is going to fulfill all those promises that he's made. And what Paul next does here in verses 9 through 12 is he, begin, he begins to, to say essentially something like this. In keeping with what the law, the prophets, and the writings, and that was the way that Jewish people thought about the whole of the Old Testament, this, these three sections, law, prophets, and writings. We'll talk about how that breaks down here in just a second. In keeping with what the whole Old Testament teaches about all the families of the earth being blessed in Abraham... All the families of the earth should now praise Jesus because of the way that the promises to Abraham, the promises to the patriarchs have been confirmed in Christ. And then in verse 13, he's going to pray that God would grant us joy and peace and spirit-inspired hope. So we've thought for a moment about Jesus in verse 8. Let's look at what Paul claims about the Old Testament here in verses 9 through 12. Uh, but before, before I leave verse 8... Let me just invite you to look again here at what Paul says here. He says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. All is fulfilled in Christ. All the promises of God are confirmed in Christ. Can I invite you to consider whether anything could be more certain than that? God has accomplished salvation from sin, freedom from guilt, and He is assuring us through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that life, the life that He gives, conquers death. So we hear promises all the time. And as, as we approach 2020, you're going to hear lots of promises from politicians. We hear promises from authors of books about how their diet or their exercise program or their their memory strategies or whatever it is are going to change your life. We hear promises from schools about how if you study here, you're guaranteed to get a job and so on and so forth. Sometimes we hear, we hear well-intended and, and God-honoring promises from uh, spouses at wedding ceremonies. We hear promises from parents. These are all, these are all fine, but these promises that are being talked about here are the ultimate promises, and they are more sure than any other promises you will hear. The keeping of God's promises saves Israel and moves the gospel 
to the Gentiles. And so here's your, if you want a simple application here in response to Romans 15 verse 8, I would call you to trust in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not someone who is, who is identifying as a Christian, I would say to you, Jesus is trustworthy. He's worthy of your confidence, and you should put it in him. You should turn away from anything else that you're looking for to save you or to change your life, and you should trust completely in Christ. Verse 9, law, prophets, and writings. Uh, in, in this way of thinking about things, this first statement that's quoted in verse 9 here is drawn from a, a body of the Old Testament that would have been referred to as the former prophets. So in, in the Old Testament, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books were the law, the law, the Torah of Moses. And then the next books were Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And this quotation comes from the book of Samuel. It's from Second uh, Samuel chapter 22, verse 50. And, and it's interesting, that whole chapter is essentially the same material that you find in Psalm 18. So in a, in a way, you kind of have the prophets and the writings here because the Psalms are in the section of the Old Testament referred to as the writings. But he's going to quote the Psalms here in a second. Let me, just, let me just invite you to look back with me for a moment at 2 Samuel chapter 22. And let me draw some your attention to uh, the way that Paul, I think means to bring together what this passage actually says in context, in its Old Testament meaning, in order to claim that this is, this is fulfilled in Jesus and it's reason for the Gentiles to praise God. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1. It says, this is really the superscription of Psalm 18 also, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So David is writing this poem in response to God saving him. And I can't take a whole lot of time to talk about this, but the pattern of events through which God saved David and exalted him as king is a pattern that is, it is, it is in important ways repeated and fulfilled in the way that God brought Jesus through persecution and suffering and even death and then raised him from the dead and enthroned him as king. And then you know about the promises, I trust, that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, about how God would uh, raise up his seed after him and establish the throne of his kingdom. Look down at the last words of, of 2 Samuel chapter 22. Look at verse 51, where David writes, Great salvation he brings to his king, talking about himself, I think, and shows steadfast love to his anointed. David was the anointed, the Messiah. In that sense, that word anointed just means Messiah. David was the anointed. He was the Messiah in his day. To David and his offspring. That word offspring could be translated seed. This is the promised one. It's like David is saying, everything I've just said in this poem about how God saved me, project it forward. It's not just about me as the Lord's anointed. It's also about my offspring that the Lord promised to me in 2 Samuel. And in this context, look at what we have right above this in verse 50. For this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. That's the, that's the line that Paul quotes in Romans 15, verse 9. Therefore, 
I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So I think Paul quotes that verse strategically. I think he means to evoke the way that God made these promises to David. David understood that he was typifying the Lord Jesus. And now, just as David praised God among all the nations that he had conquered, so now, because of the fulfillment of David's conquest in Christ's conquest, all the nations should respond with praise. And then look at verse 10. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Uh, again, uh, if we go back and look at that context, in the context, it's fascinating. That's the chapter where the Lord says to Israel, Because you've rejected me, I'm going to make you jealous with what is no nation, with what is no people. And, and Paul, we've seen him quote those lines in Romans 10 in this book. But then the Lord goes on to say, he says, I would have destroyed Israel altogether, which you remember he said that at Mount Sinai and then he, in Exodus 32, and then he said it again in Numbers 14, Numbers 13 and 14, but he didn't do it either occasion. And he doesn't do it on this occasion. In Deuteronomy 32, he says, uh, he's again going to vindicate his people and he's going to restore them when their strength is gone. And then we find these words that are, that are quoted, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So once again, it's like Deuteronomy 32, it's like the whole history of God's interaction with his people leading to the, the good news going to the Gentiles and them being brought in, and then the people of Israel being restored, and then everybody praises God together. And then look at the next line quoted here in Romans 15, 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol, extol him. Here, Paul quotes from the Psalms. So he's got 2 Samuel, that's the, the prophets. And then he's got um, Deuteronomy, that's the law. And now he's got the writings by quoting the Psalms. And guess what? Psalm 117, same situation going on there. In Psalm 110, there's this celebration of the future king from David's line. And then as though in response to the conquest of the future king from David's line in Psalm 110, you get this series of, of Hallel Psalms where there's just this hallelujah that echoes through Psalms 111 through Psalm 117. And so once again, Psalm, Romans 15, 11, quoting Psalm 117, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And then verse 12, it's a quotation from Isaiah 11. We can go look at that context. Same story. Same story. We've got uh, the Messiah coming. He rises to rule all the nations, and in him the Gentiles hope. The root of Jesse will come. This is a quotation of Isaiah 11, verse 10. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So how do we respond to these statements? Well, Paul is not just pulling random lines from the Old Testament. Paul is quoting statements from the Old Testament that really summarize the whole Old Testament story about how God is going to accomplish salvation. And, and the application here for us, I think, is really straightforward. It's easy, isn't it? Praise Him. Praise Him. In response to what God has done in Christ, praise Him. God has accomplished salvation, so we should trust Him, verse 8. God has accomplished salvation in Christ, so we should praise him, verses 9 through 12. And that brings us to this doxology that we find in verse 13. 
uh, this prayer that Paul offers for the people. We saw him do this a moment ago in Romans 15, verse 5. And, and here he is doing it again. He says in Romans 15, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. If I were to ask you to define the word hope, I wonder what would, what would come to mind. We, we know the feeling, don't we? This is what dictionary.com says, definition of hope. The feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. What is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. What we want to do is we want to make sure that our hopes are not misplaced. We want, to, we want to be sure that we're hoping for what God wants for us and that our definition of events turning out from, for the best is God's definition of events turning out for the best. If, if we have misplaced hope, if we hope for things that God doesn't want for us, or if, if we have a definition of things turning out for the best that is not God's definition of things turning out for the best, we're going to be disappointed and we could even despair, which is an interesting word because the word despair really comes from roots that mean lose hope. But those who believe the Bible, those who, who continue to expose themselves to the Bible, we read in the Bible, don't we, what it is that God wants for us. And we see in God's promises, God's explanation of what it means for events to turn out for the best. And those who believe the Bible, those who believe and embrace the Bible, we are, we're trying to root out from our hearts those misplaced hopes. So let me, look at, let me invite you to look at this verse again. May the God of Hope. Why does he call God the God of hope? Well, because God is the one who's going to grant what we desire, and God is the one who's going to make it so that things turn out for the best. He's the one who's inspired our hopes with his promises. He's the one who will accomplish our hopes. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I've been listening to Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, and it's a, it's a fascinating novel that, that Tolstoy was actually writing in the whole intellectual ferment that gave rise to those who, who uh, came up with the communist theories. And communism, it's like a godless attempt to achieve the millennium. You're, you're trying to bring about the kingdom of God, but you have no God. If ever there were misplaced hopes, there they are. And what Tolstoy is presenting in this this fabulous novel, maybe the greatest novel ever written. What Tolstoy is presenting is a character who's discussing these ideas with people of his generation. And what happens to this guy is eventually he realizes that he can't live without God. And amazingly, the guy becomes a Christian. He converts from atheism to Christianity. It's as though Tolstoy is saying, you want hopes that aren't misplaced? You want hopes that are actually going to be fulfilled? You need to stop trying to achieve the kingdom of God without God and hope in what God has promised. It's, it's almost as though it's preaching the gospel in the novel. 
If we, if we hope for a better world, we should hope for the better world that the, that the Bible promises. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I don't know if this was your experience, but this was my experience. As, as I was, as I was um, coming to understand Christianity, and as I was wrestling with whether I would continue in the faith that I had embraced or leave it for some other philosophy... I was in this quandary, and then when in this in this moment, I can I can envision exactly where I was outside my high school, uh, one day between classes. I was walking along, and I had the thought, I can't live without God. I can't live if I embrace one of those philosophies. And joy and peace just flooded my soul. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing as we trust the Lord, he will give us joy and peace so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This, this spirit-empowered hope is exactly what Paul describes back in Romans 5 when he speaks of the way that in verse 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this joy and peace is what he had talked about in Romans 14, 17, when he says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We don't want misplaced hopes. We want our hopes firmly placed in what God wants for us and what God has said about how things will turn out for the best. So from verse 8, how do we respond to Jesus? becoming a servant to the circumcised, to confirm the faithfulness of God. We trust Him. From verses 9 through 12, how do we respond to these calls to praise? Well, we praise Him. Verse 13, how do we respond? We hope in Him, and we cultivate joy and peace among ourselves. And as God works among us, and as the gospel bears fruit among us, we will be at peace with one another. And unity will be empowered among us. And we will be unified because we're all agreed on what we're hoping for. And we're all agreed from the Bible's instructions on how we're working toward that together. That's what we're about here. We want to trust Him. We want to praise Him. And we want to hope in Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, You are the God of hope. And our prayer this morning is that you would help us to see how you have accomplished all things in Christ and that you would cause our hearts to feel a desire welling up within us to respond to him in praise. And Lord, we ask you, the God of hope, to fill us with all joy and peace as we trust you so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. Lord, help us to hope in what you want for us, in what you have said about how things will turn out for the best. Help us to hope in you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.